Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Please, sir, can I have more? Jay Powell set to cut rates, but will he play the artful dodger on future cuts? Back online soon, Saudi Aramco says it will recover quickly from the weekend's attacks and gone in a poof. India bans e-cigarettes across the country. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, where there's only one move that matters this morning, the hotly anticipated rate cut we expect the Fed to announce at 2 p.m. Eastern time today. Investors, I can tell you, well and truly paused for Powell here, judging by U.S. stock market futures, as you can see. All three majors pretty flat here. In fact, we're relatively flat over the last few sessions, too. The U.S. president has said he wants to see a big interest rate drop here, a cut but the consensus is that the Fed will go for a quarter of a point. And even that, not that clear based on market pricing right now. Far more important, though, I think will be the messaging about future rate moves. Watch out for that phrase, mid-cycle adjustment, a phrase that caused so much market upset last time. The decision, of course, also following some pretty interesting data from yesterday's session too. U.S. industrial production in August surprised to the upside as did manufacturing production. Now, we've talked endlessly here on First Move about the recessionary feel in the manufacturing data. Well, Jay Powell has flagged this too, so this data caught my eye. Now, admittedly, it's just one data point. And that, does, of course, it doesn't make a trend, but it is a bounce off the lows here, so important to watch, I think. Now, the decision from the Fed today comes amid a range of old uncertainties and some brand new ones. The New York Federal Reserve was forced to stage a late-night rescue operation to calm the money markets. Now, this is where banks led to each other on Tuesday for the first time since the financial crisis. The bank pumping over $50 billion into the market after the overnight lending rate hit 10%. They're going to inject another $70-plus billion today. What's going on here? Some mere financial plumbing issues or something more sinister? Well, we'll be discussing later on in the show. But for now, let's get to the drivers because we do begin with the Fed. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, Claire the Federal Reserve got its hands full well and truly right now. But let's talk about the rate decision today. We are expecting a quarter of a point cut. But as I mentioned there, the forecasts here also, what do they say about the future? Going to be vitally important here too. Yeah, Julia, a very important meeting, not just because uh, after the last one, which was the first rate cut uh, in more than a decade, uh, this will really give investors a sense of whether it was that uh, mid-cycle adjustment, that crucial phrase that sent the markets tumbling during the last press conference. If we get another cut, there may be thoughts that this might be a slightly longer cutting cycle, which is, is of course, what the markets want. But we have a press conference. We also get economic projections. We get the dot plot, uh, which is where policymakers say that they they see the future path uh, of interest rates. So there's going to be a lot to chew over uh, in this meeting. A real communication challenge as well uh, for Jerome Powell, who had a little bit of trouble in the last meeting at justifying why he was doing what he calls uh, an insurance cut to get ahead of potentially impending risks, while at the same time saying that he's data dependent. And as you say, there is a lot of mixed data out there. We had some really good housing starts this morning. Uh, consumer confidence, though, dipped uh, a, a bit in August, but we continue to see record uh, or generational lows uh, in unemployment and, and, of course, some weakness in manufacturing. 
manufacturing, but some positive numbers there as well. So there's there's a real challenge here in terms of, of how the Fed sets policy and, and also how it communicates it to the market. There's a, there's a confidence issue out there. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, all that talk, if you go back even just a few weeks of the idea of them doing half a percentage point seems long gone at this stage. And, and you point out some of the data, retail sales, the manufacturing data perhaps bouncing here too. The problem is the risk that given market pricing right now, he disappoints here if he gives any clear direction over what, they, uh, what they're thinking here. He basically needs to say, look, we're data dependent and nothing else. He needs to have it both ways, uh, Julia. He's dealing not only with, with a kind of a split market. If you look at the CME FedWatch tool, which gauges uh, market expectations for a, for a rate cut, there's about a 54% probability there that they will cut rates by a quarter percentage point, which, as you say, has come down a lot in recent weeks. And he's not only dealing with that, he's dealing with a bit of a split uh, on the FOMC among market participants. A crucial part of the Fed chair's job is to build consensus on the committee and come to a decision uh, that, that most people are happy with. I think, uh, you know, he's only recently started to see dissent and I think in the last two meetings uh, to his decision. So he's going to have to really work to bring these these policy makers together. And of course, he has the issue when it comes to the money market as well. The Fed stepped in again this morning uh, and injected 75 billion uh, into that repo market to keep the, the kind of the plumbing uh, of the financial system going. That again has jolted confidence. So we may uh, see at least questions on whether the Fed might do something more long term than these ad hoc cash injections uh, to keep that that going, to keep the, the plumbing of the financial system ticking over, Julia. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what Jay Powell says about that in the press conference as well. Uh, plumbing issues. Fed's got to get a handle on this. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver and some breaking news just into CNN. President Trump just tweeting, quote, I have just instructed the Secretary of Treasury to substantially increase sanctions on the country of Iran. No details on what those new sanctions are. It's certainly tied to the attacks over the weekend on the Saudi oil facilities, though Iran has strongly denied any connection to those attacks. Oil prices pairing recent gains as Saudi Aramco offers reassuring words about how quickly production will return to normal following those attacks. Now, while Brent and WTI are down, as you can see, uh, over more than a percent right now, they're still up nearly 7% week to date. Now, at a news conference in Jeddah, Saudi Aramco said it was confident production will be fully restored by the end of the month. John Defterius was there and joins me now. John, let's talk about that first and just how quickly Saudi Aramco can get production back online and then we'll tackle the president's tweets too. A lot to tackle, but let's cover, as you suggested, what we've seen from Aramco. It's still weeks, not days, Julian, to the recovery, but a lot fewer weeks. Let's put it that way. Two to three, not four to six. And that is a relief uh, to the market. That news was shared by the Brain Trust there, the Minister of Energy, uh, the chairman of Aramco and the CEO of Aramco as well, saying that we're at 70 percent capacity now and we will get to 100 percent capacity by the end of the month. But this is no simple feat. They uh, were telling me they had 15 concurrent fires to deal with. It was like an inferno. Uh, and they're happy that it's over and that they can recover from that jolt of 5.7 million barrels a day. Uh, I asked uh, Amin Nasser here how vulnerable they are going forward because of all the attacks over the last five months and also this ability to turn things around so quickly and the IPO. Let's take a listen to what he had to say to CNN Business. We will be uh, back at uh, our production levels before the attack by the end of this month. 
if not earlier. If not earlier, but by the end of the month, more comfortably, we will be definitely resumed as uh, before the attack. Where are we today, Mr. Nasser? Almost at 70% today because we are picking up $100,000, $200,000 in hours every Because, you know, when you introduce production, you open wells and it takes time to feed into the facilities. Can you realistically go ahead with an IPO when you, your company, the installations have been under siege for five months? Is it realistic to say, yes, we'll go public? And are you more determined than ever to do so? You know, this is still the most reliable company in the world. You know, our reliability, what we are proud of is that our reliability in the last three years, is 99.7, 99.8, and 99.9. Tell me of any company that's able to continue and maintain MSC and production with attacks on the east-west, on Shebeh, on Khoreis, and on Abgeek, with 10 fires raging in Abgeek fields simultaneously, putting all of these fires in hydrocarbon with oil and gas and all of these facilities with tanks burning in less than seven hours. This is the most reliable company in the world. We are able to deliver under the worst scenario. Would you do something before the end of the year then with the IPO after this major setback to send a message to the perpetrators? The timing of the IPO and the place of where it is to be listed is the government uh, decision. What we are uh, for listing any time the shareholder asks us to list. You're not shelving the IPO? No, no, for sure, the government is not shifting the, the IBO. They uh, indicated that they are going ahead with the IBO and the company, and there's a lot of preparation that's done to prepare for the IBO, and the IBO is uh, uh, on progress. I mean, Nasser, the CEO of Aramco, and Julia, it's an interesting narrative uh, shaping up before the arrival of Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. Uh, basically, Saudi Arabia admitting we cannot go it alone. We can recover from the jolt of 5.7 million barrels, uh, but we need to have uh, help here defending the assets going forward. And that seems to be the emphasis, uh, along with the sanctions against Iran, as opposed to a military strike. That's the tone we're getting uh, here in Jeddah and Riyadh. So important as well, as, as you were talking to him there as well about the IPO of Saudi Aramco. If you're going to IPO, going to go public with these assets, you've got to be able to show you can protect them. John, I also want to talk about, obviously, what we got from the president this morning in this tweet, suggesting that there's going to be further sanctions on Iran here. We're still waiting to hear formally from the Saudis, backed up by evidence of, of who they believe carried out these attacks ultimately. But it seems... The president's not hanging around here and, and well and truly pointing the finger at Iran and uh, taking action with it. Well, there's two choices they had here, uh, Julian. They backed off of the military strike. At least that's the, uh, the narrative that we're hearing uh, on the ground in Saudi Arabia. So what's the other tool that President Trump likes to use? Uh, the sanctions. Uh, but they may fall on deaf ears. I mean, the Iranians are hurting so badly economically. I'm not sure if they're going to have the desired effect of getting Iran back to the bargaining table. And there's a giant elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about here in Saudi Arabia. It's the presence of Saudi Arabia in Yemen going forward uh, because the, the Iranian President Rouhani was suggesting uh, that others should be very careful and learn the lesson of the strikes against Aramco because of the presence of Saudi Arabia in Yemen. It's a huge issue that nobody's talked about just yet. No, a huge issue, and we'll continue to discuss. John Defterius, thank you so much for joining us from Jeddah there. All right, over to India now, and a very topical subject. India's finance minister 
just announcing a ban on sales, on manufacturing and the storing of e-cigarettes. Haddis Gold is following the story for us. This is a really fascinating had us given the prevalence of traditional tobacco smoking in India and perhaps the opportunity that some of the big tobacco makers and sellers here saw in India, no more. Yeah, Julia, this is a total clampdown. It's not just a ban on using e-cigarettes. It's also a ban on even possessing them importing them, and most importantly, I think, for a lot of these companies, production and export of e-cigarettes. And if you are caught using an e-cigarette, possessing one, you could face fines. You could face even jail terms in India. This was just announced. It's an emergency order that they hope to turn into formal parliamentary law within the next year. And the government cited health issues, especially how e-cigarettes, with all their flavors like melon and vanilla, can appeal to young people. That seemed to be the major major thrust behind this. But as you know, it is a huge market in India. According to the World Health Organization, India is the world's second largest consumer of tobacco products, which kills, unfortunately, around 900,000 people a year. This would have been a huge market for the e-cigarette, uh, e-cigarette companies. We uh, just got a statement from Juul, for example, they said that they're not in India yet. But you can imagine that that is a, a market that they would want to get into with all the people who use tobacco there. However, there's a lot of critics who are saying this might not just be all about health. There could be some sort of economic basis behind this because India is the third largest producer of tobacco. So there are some critics who are wondering if there's also an economic aspect to all this where they want to sort of clamp down on e-cigarette production in order to protect the industry there. But obviously the health concerns around e-cigarettes and how much we just don't quite know yet about how it affects people, how it affects especially young people, something that a lot of governments, including the American government, is keeping in mind. Donald Trump's administration just announced that they plan to try to ban the specific flavors of e-cigarettes like those melons and bubblegum that specifically appeal to young people, Julia. Yeah, but Hadis, you mentioned a really important point there in the political ramifications here. 45 million people domestically in India relying on the tobacco sector, so a protectionist measure perhaps here too, which is a really fascinating point. Now, as you mentioned, Juul, one of the big players in this space, not in India, but they are in China, and it seems they're having some trouble there. Talk us through this story, because this is also an interesting one to watch as well. Yeah, Julia, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Juul, after just launching on online stores in China, has been pulled off some of the biggest sites like JD and Alibaba's, one of Alibaba's uh, sites called Tmall. Now, this is their official Juul sort of store on these online websites. We were able to find Juul being sold off by some independent retailers. It's not quite clear why they are not being sold on there anymore because you can find other types of e-cigarettes, especially e-cigarettes made by national companies. All Juul has said so far in a statement is that they look forward to continue dialogue with stakeholders so they can make their products available again. Julia. Hadas, fantastic to have you with us. Hadas Gold there on that story. Right, a tough message to deliver now in our next driver. FedEx share price falling sharply pre-market on the back of its earnings report last night. Right now down nearly 12%. Paul and Monica joins us on this story. Paul, a revision of their guidance going forward and a disappointment on earnings. To what extent was this global macro trade concerns or the ending of that ground delivery contract with Amazon here? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, Julia. The company did address ending the contract with Amazon 
as a problem for the short term in particular. And obviously, Amazon now is a more formidable competitor to FedEx along the lines of UPS and uh, the U.S. Postal Service, obviously, as well. But what's really interesting, Julia, is that CEO Fred Smith did not mince words at all about the concerns regarding the trade tension with China and the global economic deteriorating conditions that we're seeing right now. He said that he thinks that there are some people that are whistling past the graveyard in the U.S. by denying that there won't be any potential economic problems eventually in America because of what's happening in China. He said specifically, you look at what's happening with Europe, Europe is a big reason why China is struggling now as well because of all those exports from China to Germany and many other European nations. So I think it's going to be very difficult for U.S. companies to hold up in the face of a slowdown in China and the EU to significantly large global economies. Yeah, the perfect storm, global macro headwinds and increasing logistics competition as well in this space. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Israeli TV exit polls show the blue and white party led by Benny Gantz with a slight lead for control of the Knesset. It shows numbers hold. Gantz could be tapped to form a new government. That would end Benjamin Netanyahu's tenure as the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. The European Parliament has approved a motion supporting a third Brexit extension if there's a purpose to do so. This as Britain's highest court is sitting for a second day weighing whether Boris Johnson's government acted unlawfully when it decided to suspend Parliament for five weeks. The government's lawyer argues the suspension is not a matter for the courts. All right, still to come on the show, adopt the brace position with Brexit coming. Airbus tells us it's preparing for a hard landing. Stay with us, there's plenty more to come. Welcome back to First Move. And we are here with Scott Minard. He's a Global Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners, also a member of the Federal Reserve's Bank of New York's Investor Advisory Committee on Financial Markets. That's a tongue twister. Great to have you with us. Oh, always great to be here. So what will the Fed do today and what should the Fed do? Well, There's a, a difference. That's a great way to put it, Julia. Look, look, the Fed has totally boxed themselves into a quarter of a point rate cut. Uh, because of the division in the committee, which we saw the last meeting where two of the committee members dissented from reducing rates, uh, it's going to inhibit Powell's ability to do anything more dramatic. Uh, of course, there are people like uh, Brainerd in St. Louis who's arguing we should actually be thinking about cutting rates by half a percent. And I, I tend to agree with him because the markets are already pricing for this to happen. And if the Federal Reserve wants to get ahead of the recession risks that they seem to be fighting, uh, I think it would be better to just you know, rip off the Band-Aid, cut rates by a half a percent, and, and send a clear signal to the market that they're not going to allow us to have a recession. You know, it's interesting. We've talked a lot on this show, particularly in light of the, the moves that we've seen in the bond markets, right. about the likelihood of recession and continue to make the argument that the consumer looks healthy still, the manufacturing sector looks recessionary. Right. What's your data saying? Because the probability model here for recession now at 58% by mid-2020. Right. Well, you know, our data says that consistent with history, 
at this point in the game, we have uh, over a 50% chance that we're going to get a recession within the next year. But, you know, there have been periods of time in history where this has registered this level before, but the Federal Reserve takes aggressive action, right. and we've been able to put the recession off. One thing I keep, people keep asking me is, can we avoid the recession? And the answer is no. The, the recession is going to come. It's just a matter of will it come next year or will it come in two or three years. And surely how deep it is as well. You can right. make it more shallow perhaps by taking preemptive action and, and cutting rates. Right. Though history does show us that when they do take these preemptive steps and they stretch out the expansion, that it does allow excesses to build. Oh. And so sometimes we can get ourselves into more trouble later. So they're, they're walking a, a fine line right now. Does it really make a difference then to, to that point, whether Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve do half a percentage point today or they do a quarter of a percentage point based on those, those metrics? Because to your point, it's about looking at history and saying how likely a recession is versus looking at the data today and saying what's right. required. Well, it's interesting because if you look at the data today, nothing's required. <laughs> um, I mean, going into the last meeting, the data argued that they should consider raising rates. Yes. Today, the data is even stronger. And so, uh, uh, of course, this uh, data dependence that, that they've long operated on has suddenly shifted uh, to a concern about the recession and taking out an insurance policy and also concerns of, of uh, the trade policy and things from overseas. So I think they're going to, whether they need to be doing it or not, they're going to continue because uh, they're afraid and they're going to do what they have to do. So notes to Jay Powell today, don't use the phrase mid-cycle adjustment. Emphasize everywhere else and the concerns everywhere else perhaps rather than what's going on in the US economy and I mean it's a little bit ridiculous but well I, I would have to say they they probably need to drag in the the events of Saudi Arabia right the, the price the spike in oil prices could flow through the economy inflation so, right well but also uh, if gasoline prices spike that'll cause the economy to slow so he's got a number of excuses to continue going uh, but I can tell you that I, I think the committee will be perhaps even more divided at this meeting than it was the last meeting. Mm, fascinating. What about the funding markets and the interbank lending rates, so-called the repo rate that we saw a huge spike? How alarmed should we be by that? Or is it just a, a product of wacky markets right, right. now? Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, I've long argued that, that the way that they're operating policy is fundamentally flawed. Mm. That, that they had no real way to, to stop something like what happened yesterday and what has continuing on today. Uh, the reason that they don't want to address the problem uh, in a way that would keep this from happening is they'll lose control of the balance sheet. And so they've been promising that they're going to grow the balance sheet at a certain rate. Uh, every time the Fed has to step in and do what they're doing, which is buy securities to put liquidity in the market to get rates down, yes. they increase the balance sheet. And that was a fundamental problem back in the 1970s. Uh, they, they, they kept putting a lid on rates and not realizing that they were expanding the money supply so fast that in the end it, it set off an inflation spiral. So they're, they're, uh, they're cognizant of that and they, they don't want to lose control of the balance sheet because at the end of the day, it's, it is the amount of money in circulation that ultimately determines inflation. Wacky markets.
I stand by that. I stand by that phrase. What a challenge. Scott, fantastic to have you with it's us. Scott Miner there from Guggenheim Partners. The market open is next. Stay with us. You're with First Move. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange and the opening bell. Stocks opening pretty much unchanged this morning ahead of the Federal Reserve rate decision. 2 p.m. Eastern time, of course, is the date. Expectations are for a quarter point cut, so that's what we're watching for. But of course, as we've been discussing throughout the show so far today, far more important, I think, the messaging about what the prospect is for future rate moves at this moment. We're easing a little bit, as you can see here, down around a tenth of a percent for the U.S. majors at this moment. One of the things, of course, that we are going to be watching for is what the outlook is from J-PAL with regards to the prospect of recession here, too. Well, I can tell you, America's chief financial officers are also on high alert for a recession. A survey's flagged that uncertainty is now the biggest concern for them. Matt Egan has all the numbers. Matt, some rising concern here from CFOs about the prospect of a future recession coming before the 2020 election, I think, and that's also key here. Talk us through it. So, Julia, this is the longest economic expansion in American history. And CFOs are starting to become more concerned that it may end. They're really worried about this U.S.-China trade war. There's a lot of concern, of course, about the global slowdown. Both those things are linked together, and they both cause uncertainty. And so that's why we've seen in this Duke CFO survey that U.S. business optimism is now at a three-year low. Just 12% of CFOs say they're more optimistic about the U.S. economy. Compare that to a year ago when it was 44%. That's a really sharp move. Now, what is most interesting is that 53% of CFOs now expect the United States to enter a recession prior to the 2020 election. Two-thirds of those CFOs expect a recession before the end of 2020. And the other thing that is really interesting is looking at what is concerning these CFOs the most. As you mentioned, for the first time in years, the number one concern is now economic uncertainty. Previously, it was attracting and retaining talent. Now, we watch what CFOs are saying because they really are at the front lines of the economy. They have the best view. They also control the spending of companies. So, Julia, the risk, of course, is that all of these recession concerns create some sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If they fear a recession, they may hunker down, they may cut spending, and that could actually make a recession a reality. Yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, if I go back to December when we saw all that volatility and the sell-off in the markets, 82% of these CFOs were predicting a recession by the end of 2020. So actually, we've come back from that. So this idea of perhaps sort of forecasting based on the sort of volatility and the noise that we're seeing is a very important one here and talking ourselves into it. How optimistic, though, are they about the prospect of Fed rate cuts, Chinese stimulus, the European Central Bank also providing stimulus now to ward off or to soften the blow of a potential recession. 
Mr. Julie, you mentioned that 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 survey from uh, late last year, and it was saying 82% were expecting a, um, a recession. What I do think is interesting is that this Duke survey has been consistent about 2020 being the year that CFOs are most worried about. Um, but to your point, I mean, there's no uh, reason to think that a recession has to happen, right? I mean, there are ways that it can still be averted. Um, if the global economy ends up rebounding more quickly than people anticipate, that would certainly be really helpful, especially to U.S. manufacturing. The U.S. economy could end up being more resilient than people anticipate as well. And of course, in the background, there is that trade war, the trade negotiations. Um, There are uh, some people who are hoping for some sort of a breakthrough that would either roll back tariffs or at least prevent new ones from being put on. Uh, But Jeff Gunlack, the uh, pretty bearish um, investor, he spoke last night and he said he does not think there's any chance of a trade agreement with China before the election. He said that China just does not have any incentive to make an agreement. So uh, if he's right, uh, we, we probably can't count on trade as being the positive factor. Yeah, fantastic to have you with us. Matt Egan in New York, fascinating survey there. All right, President Trump has just announced his newest national security advisor, Robert C. O'Brien, is the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs at the State Department. He will take over from John Bolton, who President Trump fired last week over disagreements on Iran and other issues. I believe this is the person that he sent over to Sweden to free the U.S. racker recently, too. So, uh, as you can see, new national security advisor Robert C. O'Brien there. Now, as Matt Egan was just telling us about the CFO story and their concerns about the economy, well, after the break, why economists might be missing a trick here? We'll explain. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. Donald Trump says some people in America want to talk the country into a recession. Now, whether that's true or not, my next guest would agree that storytelling can make or break economies. And most economists just don't get it because they're ignoring the narratives, the things that we tell each other about the markets, our mortgages, even Bitcoin perhaps too. Narrative economics, how stories go viral and drive major economic events is the title of a book by the Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Schiller, who joins us now. Professor Schiller, fantastic to have you on the show. I think we have to start by defining what you mean by narrative economics, because you distill this into two main points for the purpose of the book. Well, narrative economics is the study of popular narratives. What real people out there, look at them, what are they talking about? Not just these people. Everyone. (laughs) Everyone. Everyone. Uh, And that the stories uh, convey morals and uh, uh, ideas about how the economy works. Economic narratives are the one I want to focus on that change the way people decide. But also the extent that people go to to make these narratives contagious. Storytelling, but also making them, the term we use today is viral. Yeah, so there's an inventive process that happens. So just like hit songs you, or hit plays or novels, you look at it and say, what is it about that that is so good? I can't tell you, but it just brings my emotions up. I don't know why. It's something about creative genius. And this genius drives our economy, not always in good directions. Now, you make a great point in the book as well, and you say, actually, if you... 
if you talk to a traditional economist, they'll go, look, I'm not interested in, in, in narratives. You need to talk to the journalism school or you need to talk to the, right. the, um, the sociology school. But they don't know economics. Right. <laughs> and so there's a gap. That's the unfortunate problem. We, our society is divided up into all these different specialists. And uh, just like with medicine, you know, you, you go to a cancer specialist and he'll tell you you have cancer. <laughs> That's a mistake that's sometimes made. Yes. We make it all the time in economics. So how does understanding narrative economics make economists better predictors of events? Because I think it's never been more important perhaps than today when we've seen moves in the bond market, for example, and we're talking about recession fears. And right. to the president's point, there is a risk here that we talk ourselves right. into a recession. So why does it matter and why write the book today? I think historically, uh, recessions have been substantially caused by narratives. Uh, so yeah, just recently there was all this talk about the inverted yield curve. Yes. But that is a narrative that's been building. Every time the yield curve gets close to inverted, it gets, that narrative gets stronger. So it's growing on a, an interrupted epidemic path. And you can see it, how it's going, it affects the probability that we'll actually go into recession. How much? How much does it affect the probability? Well, I think substantial, but I have to say, I don't quantify it in my book. I know. I, I, I thought <laughs> I was one waiting has to for start, that bit. <laughs> you have to start somewhere. Okay. <laughs> Because was, I was waiting for that chapter. I was like, we need to quantify this. Chapter one, though, and this was fascinating for me, you chose to talk about Bitcoin. Right. Talk to me about well, this. I, I wanted to talk about that because people today remember it. They've seen it, and young people have experienced it. They experience the enthusiasm that some people have for Bitcoin. That is the real story. I mean, the, the technology behind Bitcoin is impressive. The smart computer scientists designed it. But there's something about the story that excites me. I can tell my, when I lecture to my class uh, on finance, people wake up when I, <laughs> when you mention it, when I mention Bitcoin. I can see a glimmer in their eyes. I know that they're onto something. And they think that it's really important. It all ultimately uh, relates to their philosophy of life about we want to, don't want the government to control everything. They resent, they have these inner resentments. Somehow the, the story ties into that. It has a nice mystery story about Satoshi Nakamoto, which I could expand on. The great story. And it becomes viral. And that's, that made Bitcoin. It's nothing, I'm not diminishing this. It's true of so many different economic phenomena. You're not diminishing it, and you don't diminish it in the book, but you also point out there's some really big skeptics out there. Warren Buffett is a skeptic, for example. Yeah. But, I mean, we literally on First Move last week on this show did a whole week talking about cryptocurrencies and the excitement that I see in the community is palpable right, right now. At what point does a great story, a great narrative become something that's incredibly potent? I mean, you use a great comparison yeah. with gold here and say, actually, the intrinsic value in gold right now is because people believe there's value in gold. Yeah. So I think we have to have respect for the humanities. We're, we're many, our education is drifting toward being more career-oriented and not story-oriented. <laughs> you have to understand how these stories move. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. No problem. So, um, the um, Bitcoin problem is this, has the same problem that the railroads did in the 1840s. There was a big boom in railroad stocks. Charles Darwin, other famous people got in. And then the whole thing collapsed. You know what the problem was? 
they forgot that there will be other railroads that will compete with the ones that are just starting. The same thing will happen with cryptocurrencies. Now there's thousands of cryptocurrencies. So why did everyone think it was Bitcoin? Well, it was the first movie. It was the story. It was the famous one. And so I'm going to give you some water just in case. Yeah, thank go. you. Good job. Um, so, I mean, right now, Bitcoin is around 70% of, of market share. But even if you have other competitors coming in, do you think, based on what you said in the book, too, about the, the sort of computer programming, the basis, the technology behind this, do you think cryptocurrency in whatever form is here to stay? Because that would yeah. set you apart as a... Nobel well, Prize-winning economist. Let me first say that, that the people who designed Bitcoin were smart. Uh, they didn't know that it would succeed. There's no way they had. Uh, they don't talk about the narrative uh, as a force behind Bitcoin. Uh, but I don't, I, I don't doubt that this technology will have applications somewhere. But I think it's, it's a bit of a fad right now. And we, we tend to overreact to fads that have some element of truth to them. All right. Is the fact that we have social media today, the ability to build a narrative, for information to spread so quickly, actually propagating all the themes that you talk about in this book and whether it's recession risk, whether it's concerns about stock market valuation, is today perhaps, and this time, this time that we're in, more dangerous than ever for self-fulfilling prophecies? I'd say that it might be, uh, although I want to also emphasize that self-fulfilling prophecies occurred hundreds of years ago. Yes. People talk a lot, and <laughs> look at them all talking down there, and it goes fast. Uh, so it's, but I think the, the Internet is changing the nature. One thing it does is it facilitates polarization. Yes. That, that uh, you find people who think alike, and you can become hardened in your views, ex- maybe extremist views. And so I think it is dangerous uh, and we'll have to combine narrative economics with a study of the new technology. I couldn't agree more and actually that's where I was trying to get to. You also have the, a whole chapter on automation and artificial intelligence. We don't have time to talk about it but you talk about the spikes in popularity and the viral messaging, the 60s, the 80s, the 90s, not to mention what we're seeing today. Fascinating as well. Professor Schiller, great book. Loved it. Thank you so much, Professor. Robert Schiller, their narrative economics. All right, up next. Navigating the Brexit headwinds. Yes, we're still doing it. Airbus tells us how it's preparing for a hard Brexit. Stay with us. That's coming up. To first move, the European Union warned Britain once again Wednesday that it's heading for a no-deal Brexit. With just six weeks to go, the government's Brexit strategy remains in flux. The question is, how are some of Europe's biggest companies picking up the slack and preparing? Anna Stewart joins us on this. Anna, you've been speaking to Airbus. What are they saying about the situation? Yeah, so today they are announcing a new forecast for the industry. They say there'll be demand for over 39,000 new planes by 2038, all very bullish. And that's despite all these headwinds, and there are plenty of them. But Brexit is the one I really wanted to speak uh, to the CMO of Airbus about, simply because this is a company that makes planes between... France and the UK. It couldn't be worse placed, frankly, uh, in a no deal or a hard Brexit. So I asked him, how is he preparing? What does it mean for the company? 
As a large industrial company, we don't like uncertainty, and no deal means uncertainty. But fundamentally, what it means with our, for our 13,500 employees here in the UK, or for the six billion of work that we do, that we do perform in the UK, is the question of what would the consequences of Brexit be on the competitivity of our footprint here in the UK. So it is a longer term consideration that obviously as an industrial company we will have to consider. Would it have any impact in terms of where you make your planes? Will you move any production? Well, we adapt to the best cost solutions that we can find. So if a particular uh, site uh, proves to be less performing than another one, yes, of course we will move around. So certainly not ruling out moving production out of the UK in the event of a hard or a no-deal Brexit. Uh, more to come on that, I suspect. One to watch, Julia, in the coming weeks. The WTO is expected to rule in favour of the United States in a long-running dispute with Airbus. And that could mean more US tariffs on European goods, but particularly on aerospace parts and aircrafts. So that could be another major headwind on the horizon. Yeah, and in around eight months' time, vice versa for Boeing, which is the crazy thing here. They should have done them both at the same time and just netted it off. But anyway, what do I know? Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right. Here's today's boardroom brief. General Motors and the United Auto Workers standoff has entered a third day. Nearly 50,000 workers are on strike while the negotiations continue. GM says it will stop paying for the health care for the workers protesting, forcing the union to pick up the bill. Credit Suisse says the auto strike could cost GM $50 million a day in lost revenue. Facebook says the members of a new oversight board will be announced soon. The board will have the power to override the company's decisions on some content. Some are questioning its independence already, but CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in a blog post that the board's decisions will be binding even if he disagrees with it. Facebook says it also won't pay the board directly. The funds will come indirectly through a trust. Fears of protests are forcing the Hong Kong government to pull back. It's called off the upcoming National Day fireworks scheduled for October 1st. The Jockey Club also just cancelled a lucrative race night, blaming threats made by anti-government protesters. Well, Ripley is at the city's racetrack where that event was due to take place. Well, and we can't underestimate the importance to GDP, the financial flows from the Jockey Club here for, for Hong Kong. Talk us through this decision and why. This is the latest decision to, you know, where the protests are directly having an impact, Julia, on Hong Kong's economy. The race that was supposed to happen here tonight, and you can see I'm standing in front of empty stands because the Hong Kong Jockey Club called it off when uh, protesters by the hundreds were threatening to storm onto the racetrack because a pro-Beijing lawmaker, Junius Ho, one of his horses was going to be racing tonight, and they were going to try to disrupt the race, which could have put their lives in danger, the horses in danger, spectators. And even if they didn't, you know, make it inside, there could have been a situation outside. That's why they made the decision to cancel. And uh, basically cutting off what last week amounted to 140 million U.S. dollars uh, in, in revenue. That's what the betting uh, numbers were just last week. 16,000 people attended. There are bets coming in from all over the world, places like Australia, New Zealand, the U.K., 
And so it, the, the financial impact that the jockey club is kind of downplaying, saying they have to cancel meets all the time. If there's inclement weather, if there's a typhoon, they reschedule and they say they're going to try to reschedule this meet. But when you couple this with the announcement you mentioned, Julia, the, the canceling of the Hong Kong national of the National Day fireworks uh, on October 1st to celebrate uh, the China, uh, the anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. Uh, they've postponed the Hong Kong Tennis Open. Uh, Matilda the Musical isn't coming here. They postponed that. So you have a lot of different things that are being affected, not to mention hundreds of restaurant workers being laid off. Hong Kong Airport seeing its sharpest decline last month in nearly a decade, uh, almost a million fewer uh, passengers moving through the airport. And we're told that hotel workers are being told to stay home uh, here as well because bookings are down so dramatically and rooms that normally would be very expensive are being uh, sold at just, you know, slashed rates right now here in Hong Kong because the protests have disrupted so much the hospitality and the retail uh, industry. A lot of businesses saying they can't even hold on much longer if the protests continue, particularly in some of the harder hit areas uh, like Wan Chai, uh, you know, in the center of Hong Kong, where we saw uh, violence flare up yet again just last weekend with protesters injured, people arrested, uh, petrol bombs being thrown by protesters, police firing back with tear gas. It's the kind of thing that really is going to do a lot of damage in the long term to Hong Kong's economy if this unrest continues. And this uh, race uh, cancellation tonight, just the latest example of that. Yeah, well, uh, the economic concerns becoming ever more clear. But to your point as well, with that October 1st um, celebration of the founding of the People's Republic of China, how much longer are China going to sit on their hands and just watch this? Will Ripley, thank you so much for that. All right, let me give you a look at the market price action that we're seeing. Remember, what did I call it earlier? Paused for Powell. Well, we're slipping a little bit here. Down some three-tenths of 1%, 2 p.m. Eastern time. That Federal Reserve rate decision, of course, expected to cut rates by a quarter of a percent. But the key, as we keep reiterating, what do they say about the outlook for rates here and how does Jay Powell Jay Powell calibrate that message. Quick look at what we're seeing for oil markets. The Saudis saying that will get Saudi Aramco back on track in the coming weeks, so easing a bit of pressure there. But for now, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go meet yours. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.